Well, um, again, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I do want to thank you for a couple things. One, uh, just the privilege to come and preach and get the chance to share and worship with you guys. But obviously, like my dad said, thank you so much uh, for all of you that have been on this journey with us. Some of you guys may not know, but um, those are the product of the Lord giving us a curveball with infertility a few years ago. And they are actually adopted embryos that my wife carried and gave birth to it. So that's a whole science fiction story that I'm happy to share with you at another time. But thank you for that. Um, before I pray, I just want to encourage you guys. Every time I come here and uh, get to worship with you guys, I'm just overwhelmed by your love for one another. It is amazing. Um, it's not something you see in every church congregation. You guys genuinely love each other, and so it encourages me. So with that, um, pray with me, and then we'll open up the word together. Father God, we come before you now, um, and it is a uh, weighty thing to come underneath your word. Um, and God, it is foolish of us to come uh, just seeking wisdom from our own minds or our own personalities or our own desires. Lord, we are desperate for your spirit to speak truth through your word. Um, left to ourselves, we will distort it. We will deny it. Uh, we will reject it or turn it into something that it, it never was meant to be. So I pray, Lord, you would speak to us right now. Give us the, uh, the joy of your presence, the joy of your word, the joy of your promises. Lord, as we look to a passage that may be familiar for a lot of us, um, like David prayed, restore unto us the joy of your salvation. Bring uh, just the newness of joy even to a familiar passage. Um, so, Lord, we pray that your name and your glory would uh, be what uh, resonates in this room right now. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So speaking of that, we are going to look at a familiar passage to many of us, uh, the story of Noah and the flood. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, um, you can, that's where we'll be spending most of our time today. But it is not only a familiar passage to most of us. In fact, the story of Noah and the flood is a familiar passage to most people, regardless of what religious background you have, regardless of your experience in the church. Most people know of Noah uh, and the flood. And to prove that, um, I ran a little experiment of my own. Uh, so every morning on my way to work, I stop at a coffee shop near my office. Uh, that's where I have my daily uh, devotional and quiet time. And um, as I've been going there you know, for the last four months, which ironically coincides with four months of having newborn babies, <laughs> with needing a boost of caffeine in the morning, um, I've been uh, building relationships with the baristas or, or the, the young men and women that work behind the counter, most of them are uh, in kind of their mid-20s. Um, and so I decided, as I was building relationships with them, trying to find avenues to have spiritual conversations and, and gospel-centered conversation, I would enlist their help in my sermon today. Uh, and so, as I was getting to know them, I asked their permission if I could ask them three questions. Uh, and they all said yes. And so the first question I asked them concerning the sermon today, I just said, hey, simply, are you familiar with the biblical account of Noah and the flood? Uh, and then if they were, the second question was, um, well, what do you know about the story? Just, just give me a synopsis of it. And then thirdly, I asked them what they thought the point of the story was. Well, what's the moral? What's the takeaway? Why is that story there? So of the handful of baristas, again, with different church and spiritual backgrounds, every one of them answered yes to the first question. They knew the story of Noah and the Flood. Uh, so that led to the second question of saying, okay, what do you know? And not surprisingly, most of them had the basic elements of there's a God, you talk to Noah, there's a flood coming, a lot of people died, Noah didn't, there was an ark, and then Noah was rescued. Um, but there were some people that had surprisingly uh, vast knowledge of the story. In fact, one lady that I talked to, a uh, young lady, I asked her the story, she not only knew the details of the story of Noah so well, she told me the names of Noah's sons. Now let me ask you, 
before you open up Bible. How many of you, if I would have came to you yesterday and said, tell me the story of Noah, would have been able to tell me the names of Noah's sons in the story? I'm not, yeah, you can, some of you are raising hands. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, that's right. Gold stars. Awesome. Um, I was surprised. I don't know if even before the sermon, even with a seminary degree, if I would have been able just to rattle off that. So I was impressed by her knowledge of the story. But I was also surprised at their answer to that third question on what do you think the point of the story is? And I even ask you guys now that are familiar with the story, what do you think the point of the Noah story is? Because regardless of their, I'm going to put this down here, sorry. Regardless of their church background, their biblical knowledge, they actually all landed at the same spot when they said, what is the point of the story? Which I think many of us would land. And it was something to the degree of, God will sometimes ask you to do something in faith that looks crazy to the world around you. Like, God will sometimes ask you to do something in faith that looks crazy to the world around you, which many of us would say, that's, that's not a bad takeaway from the story of Noah, right? The craziness of building this ark for a flood that was going to come, and Noah was faithful and did it. Uh, and then, obviously, he and his family were saved. Um, but I want to challenge you, whether or not that's true, is that really the point of the story? When God wrote this story through Moses, who wrote the first five books of the scripture, was that the point that he wanted us to take away from the story, especially now as we look back on the story where we are? Um, I want to challenge us that that's actually, while maybe a true key theme of the story, that's not the point of the story of Noah. And this morning, I want to go together to see if we can find what exactly the point of this familiar story is, and maybe even see the true point of it for the first time. Sound good? All right, so the first thing that we're going to do is re recount the story. So if you're already, uh, or if you're not already in Genesis chapter 6, we're not going to go through the whole few Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. We're just going to kind of look mainly in Genesis chapter 6 and remember the story of God calling Noah to do this faithful thing. So we're actually going to start in chapter 6, verse 5, uh, and we're going to read 5 through 14, and then we're going to, we're going to skip uh, into an, another couple passages. But read with me starting in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I, am, who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And I'll skip down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is in the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Skip down to 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. And you guys know the rest of the story. 
Noah was faithful in building the ark. The Lord opened the floodgates. It flooded for 40 days and 40 nights. Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives, the, the animals were all saved. Uh, as the water rose, uh, then the rain stopped. After a, a series of 150 days, the waters receded, and Noah found his ark resting on the top of the mountain where the opened up, and he and his family were rescued from the flood of God's wrath. And then, as a sign that God would not flood the earth again, he sent uh, his rainbow across the sky. So, again, many of us may be familiar with the story, but I would say that, that we may have sometimes walked away with some key themes and interpreted them as the main point. Now, the key themes of the passage are meant to lead us to what the main point is. So what I want to do for our time this morning is I do want to look at just three key themes in this story, not all the themes, and how those themes actually point us to what is the main point of the story. So let's jump back um, to the beginning, uh, Genesis uh, 6, chapter 5. We're going to see one thing as a key theme here that's going to help us understand the main point, and that's this, the reality of man's sin. The reality of man's sin. So you see uh, Moses, in writing this down, used some very heavy descriptive words to kind of paint the picture of what the world was like at that time. So again, look in verse 5 with me. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jump down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Now we're in Genesis chapter 6. It's not that far removed from Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth and created this perfect world where mankind lived in perfect fellowship with the Father and perfect fellowship with one another and perfect fellowship taking care of a perfect world. But then sin entered the picture in the garden and here we are, five chapters later, and we see that the world has just gone literally, you know what I mean. <laughs> so the, the picture that Moses is painting here is a pretty bleak picture. But I want to challenge you, if, if you're like me and grew, grew up in church, although the word sin is never once entered into this passage here, we all know sin is the issue here. Sin is, but what is sin? Now, I know that some of us may have grown up in the church, or maybe we're familiar with, with that word, but do we really understand what the nature of sin is to get the world to a place at this point where God is so heartbroken over it that he wants to start over with it? That nature of sin, how deep and powerful is that sin? Is sin simply doing bad things? Is sin simply disobedience to God's word? What is the depth and reality of man's sin? Well, I think the best way to understand it is to let Scripture speak to us about the reality of God's sin. So you can keep your finger there or do what you need to do uh, to flip over with me to Romans chapter 1. Because if we really want to see what life was like in Genesis chapter 6, we're actually going to see Paul give a pretty good uh, description of that with the reality of sin in Romans chapter 1. We're going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, un, uh, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If I was looking for a definition of a flood, 
Would that not be the definition of a flood? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, so we, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God, honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now that's a really dense, thick section that we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks unpacking, so I don't want to spend too much time here. But the essence of what I want to get here is there's almost no passage that I could think, that I could think of that actually would better describe the reality of Genesis chapter 6 than Romans chapter 1. But we see here the wickedness, the corruption, the violence that we were described as in Genesis chapter 6 is not simply sin in terms of an outward behavior, but Paul tells us the essence of sin starts with a misplaced worship. It is a heart issue. Look here in verse 21 again of Romans. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. When it comes to sin, the heart of the issue is it's always an issue of the heart. That's where it all comes from. The fact that we were designed to look out at creation, we were designed to look out at one another, we were designed to look at our very own lives and give honor and thanks and gratitude to the one who gave us life and breath. But instead, every one of us has decided to deny that and try to give honor and life and purpose and meaning and significance to anything else in all of creation. Whether it's pleasure, whether it's money, whether it's success, whether it's accolades, whether it's religion, whether it's family, anything else that we're trying to find our worth and meaning and significance in, anything we're trying to find value in other than God, anything that's our greatest treasure in the world other than God comes from a heart that is living out Romans 1. And this is how it makes itself real in Genesis chapter 6 is this. Uh, Moses describes it as a world full of violence. Well, Jesus will tell us, especially in the New Testament and like the Beatitudes, when he talks about sin, he says, sin is not simply an outward act, but sin is always an overflow of the heart. And any sin in our heart will always overflow in an act of violence. Now, we think of violence as mainly just maybe a, a physical violence, like hurting someone or punching someone. But we also know, if you've lived uh, any part of life, that violence can not only be physical, but there can be emotional violence. There can be relational violence. There can be spiritual violence. Anything that is uh, an offensive and an affront and a hurt to someone else, it's selfish. Every one of the acts of violence that humankind makes comes from a heart that is disconnected from honoring and thanking God for who he is. So when Jesus says in the Beatitudes, when you and I have an angry, hateful thought at someone, we've committed murder against them. Because our hearts always enact violence. When we say we, we lust after someone, 
That means I've committed violence relationally against the covenant of my marriage. When I gossip against someone, I'm committing violence relationally and emotionally against the value and worth of someone else. When I'm stealing or taking, I'm committing violence against robbing someone of someone else. You guys see what, where every sin always enacts some level of violence. You may not think you're a violent person. I'm sorry. <laughs> you and I are. We may not leave anybody with physical bruises, but we walk through this life committing violence upon violence in our hearts and minds and spirits any time we act out in a way that is not desiring to give honor and thanks to God, but acting out something. So, jump back with me to Genesis chapter 6. This is a dark picture of the reality of mankind when their eyes and hearts are not fixed on their God. We are a violent people. The reality of man's sin. The heart of the issue is that it's an issue from the heart. So, first key theme we have to come to grips with, whether we like it or not, is the reality of man's sin. But keeping going in the story, that's not doesn't end there. We jump into verse six. What is God's uh, uh, response to sin? God's response to our sin. Well, verse six, and the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth. It grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created in the, from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. This is a strange passage. And again, we don't have time to go all the way into it, but this idea that God has regretted or depending on the, the repented, very quickly, we know that the scripture says later on that God never changes his mind. God is not a man who should change his mind. Jesus Christ is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the idea here is not that, oh, God changed his mind. The idea that Moses is trying to get across that God is, is this. When God says it grieved him to his heart, when he looked out at the world and saw the brokenness and the violence and the hurt and the pain, we're meant to walk away thinking um, how amazing it, it is that the eternal God of heaven willfully chose to intertwine his heart with ours. So that when we sin and we hurt one another and we hurt ourselves, it grieves him. How amazing is that? That God would be so intimately loving and compassionate to us that it would literally grieve him. That, that could be translated, it filled his heart with pain to see what we were doing to ourselves, to one another, and the dishonor we brought to him. So that word grieved, if you look in, in uh, my, my translation is ESV, um, the word grieved in verse 6 is actually the same word that God would use in Isaiah 54, 6, when uh, it's, God is talking about his relationship with his people Israel and how God had kind of stepped away from them for a season but was going to come back to, to them and restore them. Isaiah 54, 6, God uses the description of grieving um, as the same grieving that a husband or wife has when they're deserted by a spouse. And Pastor Tim Keller makes the observation that therapists would say there's almost no more traumatic experience that someone can go through than the rejection of a spouse. And that's the word that God uses in Isaiah 54, but it's also the word that God uses here of how deeply involved and compassionate and loving that God is with his people, that it grieved him 
traumatically full of pain to see his people walk away from him. So the first thing it, it tells us is that God has willfully chosen to come so near to us and so intimately intertwine himself with us that out of his great love for us, we can cause him pain through our sinful decisions and actions. That's God with us. But the second thing it should also say is that when you and I look out at the brokenness of the world, and it's not hard, you could pull out your phone right now, you could go home and flip on the news, you see the violence and the brokenness in this world, and sometimes it causes your heart to grieve. Some of us with the sensitive spirit, we look at our own sin, and we grieve at our own sin in the way that it's caused violence and hurt in the lives of the people around us. But this is the other thing that we know. When we look out and we grieve over the sin in the world, God always grieves more than we do. He is eternally more grieving over this sin than we are because it broke God's heart to look out and see his people running from him and committing violence. So God's first response is this kind of compassionate, heartbroken love for his people. But then we see he's, he's not done. In verse 7, so, I, so the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the earth. So God is not only compassionately loving and brokenhearted, he's also just and good. And God will not let evil go unpunished. Sometimes he's patient and sometimes he's long-suffering, but God will not let evil go unpunished. Some of us can think this sounds harsh and some of us think this story sounds archaic and mean, but at the heart of it all, every one of us wants a God who's so good that will one day eradicate evil. We want that. We want a God who's just. We just don't want him to be just with us, but that's a different story. Um, amen. So we look at this and we see God's response is that he's lovingly brokenhearted, but he's also completely holy and just in his wrath. And we will only understand that if we first see the reality of man's sin. But then as we keep going, he, in this section, we know that we're not done, is not only is the reality of man's sin, not only do we see the response of God, but we see the rescue through God's servant. In this story, Noah. So uh, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So who was Noah? Who was this guy? We have a short little snapshot right here that just gives some pretty high uh, accolades to who this man was. We look in verse 9 where it says, uh, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Now when you read righteous, when we read blameless, you can sometimes think, does that mean Noah was sinless? Well, we can quickly say we, we know that that's not true. For the main reason, we know that there was no one sinless on earth except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every man has stepped away from God. Every man has followed his own way. The scripture is very clear of that. So blameless and righteous does not mean sinless. What it means is what Moses is writing here, and what we're supposed to walk away is, in stark contrast to that world of violence and the world that was running from God and the world that did not want to honor or give thanks to their creator, was a man who had his eyes looked heavenward, looked toward God. That doesn't mean he didn't sin, but he had his eyes fixed on the Lord and he was trying to walk with God. We know that Noah wasn't sinless, because if you read the rest of the story, once he gets off the flood, one of the first things he does is get drunk with wine. So it's like, well, that didn't last long. Yeah, good job, Noah. Um, but even more than that, 
we actually know from the first sentence describing Noah here that Noah was not perfect, and I'll show you. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So this man Noah had his eyes fixed on God and was trying to walk faithfully. It says here that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Do you know that that word favor is actually the Hebrew word that's translated grace? This is the first example of the word grace used in the scripture. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's not a sinless man. That's a man who received grace from God. See, it's not as much that Noah had his eyes on God. It was that God had his eyes on Noah. And a side note for all of us in here, if we're followers of Jesus, if we've been remade by his grace, it's not because you suddenly chose to put your eyes on Jesus. It's because out of God's grace, he called you and chose you to put his eyes on you. So just as we were chosen in Christ for salvation, so was Noah chosen for his faithful living purpose. So God used a faithful servant, Noah, to do a crazy thing and build an ark and go through that labor and effort and to trust God and hide himself in that ark and rescue him and his family and go through the flood of God's wrath and arrive on the other side delivered. And so again, we may be familiar with that story. And so now that we've kind of remembered it, well, what's the point? What's the whole point of the story? Is it that man is sinful? Well, that's true, but I don't think that's the point. Is it that God is compassionate and holy and just? That's absolutely true, but is that the point? Is it even, look at Noah, like my barista friends would say, and sometimes God is going to ask you to do crazy things uh, in faith that look foolish to the world. Is that the point? I don't think that's the point. I think we actually can know exactly what the point is. Because I think Jesus and the gospel writers and even Paul would be clear to tell us exactly what the point of the story is. So if you will flip with me, we're going to look in the New Testament. I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 24. We're going to go to a few passages here in the New Testament. Luke chapter 24. This is the end of the Gospel of Luke, and so just to remind you where we are here is that... uh, Jerusalem is just in chaos because this great teacher, preacher, prophet, man of God, Jesus, uh, was all of a sudden one night betrayed and imprisoned and convicted and executed in a matter of 24 hours. And this person that people would follow was now crucified like a criminal and dead and buried. And Jerusalem is in an uproar for what's happening. And then there's even these rumors going around that some people have seen him alive and some people have uh, claimed that he's risen from the dead. And then we have two men that are going from Jerusalem about seven miles to the city called Emmaus. And in fact, Jesus had risen from the dead, and he was alive, and everything about him was true. And Jesus comes alongside these two men and disguises himself. And and one of my favorite passages of the Bible comes along these guys and says, Hey guys, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, oh, we're talking about all the stuff that's been happening in Jerusalem these last few days. And Jesus goes, What things? It's like, oh, that's brilliant. I love that. Uh, and I think they go, are you the only one alive that doesn't know what's going on here? And they, they, they proceed to go and tell him, um, you know, Jesus, this man, great in, in word and deed, and we thought he was the one to redeem Israel, and now we don't know what to think. And again, some people claim that they've seen him alive, but that just seems so crazy. Like, we don't know what to do. And so we pick it up in verse 25. And he, Jesus, said to them, those two, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You talk about an awesome small group Bible study. <laughs> you have the Son of God walking with you a few miles and said, hey, let me tell you what the Old Testament's about. It's about me. Let me walk you through when he says Moses, Moses again being the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Every story, every passage, every symbol, every covenant, every you know, description, all leading to Jesus, going through the prophets saying, hey, it was all pointing to me, it was all pointing to Jesus. He opened up the entire scriptures, everything concerning himself. All right, so you don't believe me? Well, let's flip over to John chapter 5, because Jesus is going to do the exact same thing with a different audience. John chapter 5. So early on in John's gospel, he's, Jesus is dealing with the Jews and the teachers of the law and people who were trying to challenge him and were antagonistic towards this new rabbi. And Jesus, never wants to really mince words um, and had no problem ruffling feathers, looked at these Jews who were teachers of the law, who knew the Old Testament better than anybody around. In fact, most of them had memorized the Old Testament. They would be the experts in the Old Testament. Jesus is going to tell them, not only do you not know the Bible, the Old Testament, you've never heard the voice of God. For someone who's read and memorized the, the Old Testament, who thinks that they know the words of God, to tell them they've never even heard the voice of God, you wonder why they wanted to kill him? Because Jesus said stuff like that. So pick it up with me in, in uh, John chapter 5, uh, verse 37. This is, again, Jesus talking to those Jewish religious leaders. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Now jump down to verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how you believe my words? When Jesus talks about them searching the scriptures, what scriptures is he talking about? The Old Testament, right? He says, you search the scriptures looking for life. They point to me. He says, you, you, don't, you can't even hear Moses, who wrote the first five books of, of the Bible. If you can't see me in Moses, no wonder you don't see me standing in front of you. So Jesus is saying the point of the Old Testament is him. The point of every story is him. The point of every symbol is him. All of the scriptures is shining like a light towards Jesus. Remember the apostle Paul? He would say similar things. In Acts 17, when he goes and he was trying to share the gospel with the people around the Mediterranean, in Acts 17 he said, Paul says, for, for he reasoned to them from what? The scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament. And he says, when he goes to the church in Corinth, I wanted to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. If all the scriptures Paul had was the Old Testament and everything he wanted to know among his people was, were Christ and Christ crucified, where did he go with every single story in the scriptures? It always landed on Christ and him crucified. You and I want to know what the point of the Noah story is? 
It's Christ and him crucified. So let's just see very quickly where that is, using our key themes. The first point is we talk about the reality of man's sin. We looked at it in Genesis chapter 6, where it talks about the wickedness and the corruption and violence. No one spoke more about the reality and wages and penalty of sin than Jesus Christ. And if we ever questioned how gross and how powerful and how dangerous our own sin is, we look to the cross where the light of the world was strung up like a criminal. That is the cost of my sin. That is the reality of my sin. Not just Genesis 6 in a world that's falling apart in my own heart apart from God. That is the reality of my sin. Genesis 6 in the wickedness of man's sin is supposed to point me towards the reality of the cross. We talk about God's response to our sin in Genesis 6 where we see that weird play on his compassionate love being brokenhearted over the sins of the world, but also his justice in wanting to blot out the sins of the world. That is shining to us the most triumphant example of God's compassion and mercy and righteous wrath coming together at the cross. Or on the cross where the Son of God bore the sins of mankind, we see absolutely the righteous wrath of God against sin. The fullness of God's holy wrath against the wickedness, not just of Genesis 6, of Genesis 7, of Genesis 8, of Genesis 9, of Genesis 10, and today, the wickedness of the members of Grace Redeemer Church and their guest speaker, all fully bore on Jesus on the cross the fullness of God's wrath against sin, but at the same time, in a way that nobody could have ever predicted, in the same exact moment, the unfolding of the incredible compassion and mercy and love of God, a God who has chosen to intertwine his heart with our lives. And we see the compassion of God as with Jesus suffering from our sin, he gives us complete forgiveness and redemption and all the reward that belongs to Jesus becomes ours. We see a tension in Genesis 6 for this compassion and wrath of God. We see that fully developed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And last but not least, we have a key theme of God's servant uh, I'm sorry, God's rescue through his servant. Jesus isn't just a better version of Noah. Noah was a failed sinful man that by God's grace, by God's favor, was used to do a pretty amazing thing. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man who came not simply to rescue his small family from a flood, but to rescue all mankind from the flood of God's wrath. When we look at Noah building an ark to rescue people from the flood, to deliver them to the new world, we absolutely have to see Jesus Christ, who's not only the better Noah, but Jesus Christ is the ark that we hide in, that saves us from the wrath of God's flood and delivers us to not just a fallen world like Noah ended up with, but a perfect world forever redeemed, restored relationship with God and his family and a new heaven and a new earth that's coming soon where there will be no more floods. When we look at the story of Noah, we should see cross, 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 cross. When we look at the story of Genesis 6, we should see Jesus in the gospel because Jesus tells us it was all about him. So, 
as we wrap up to, to conclude, uh, what, do, what do we take away from this? We, when we see what the point of the story is, well, the point of the story is as true as you know, it is man's sinfulness, as true as it is God's wrath and compassion, as true it is, as it is that God may call you to do crazy things that don't make sense to the world, the point of the story is Jesus saves sinners. So with that, one, one takeaway of two. I don't presume to know anybody's heart in here. I don't have a spiritual x-ray machine that can tell where you, where you are. Um, whether this is your first visit to church or you've been going to church for 50 years, I don't presume. The first thing we have to ask ourselves is this. Have I run to Jesus, his perfect life, perfect sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross in my place for my sin, and his victorious resurrection that gives me new life? Have I run to him as my ark? Have I hidden myself in him? Like Paul would say in Colossians chapter 3, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The first question I ask myself from the Noah story is, have I been rescued from the eternal flood of God's wrath against sin by hiding myself in Jesus Christ? And if you answer yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I've given my, faith, my life to him, I've been remade in him, then the second question I will ask you is this, is to say, do you go to him to hide yourself from the daily floods of this world? And what I mean by the daily floods is this. We look at the sinfulness of man, and we know that in this life we're still wrestling with sin. We are not glorified. We are not what we will be one day. Sin is still, unfortunately, alive in us. And that violence that can come out in our lives, maybe violence of our words or actions or relationships, am I taking that sinfulness and am I deciding not to live in that but to hide myself in Jesus Christ, to the sanctification process, to take and run to Jesus Christ so that I don't walk out those sinful, violent tendencies, but instead I hide myself in Jesus and live the life that he has called me to in faithfulness and obedience to him. The daily flood of our sin, the daily fight of our sin, are we fighting daily to hide ourselves and live out the life that we have in Jesus from the daily flood of our sins. But secondly, the flood of our circumstance. I know we could go down the row one at a time and talk about health issues, job issues, financial issues, broken dreams, all the different things from this world that are crushing in on us, that can seem overwhelming and that can absolutely crush us if those things were where we put our hope. When the floods of circumstances of brokenness of this world come, where do you run to hide yourself? Do you go to Jesus from the daily flood? His love for you. His working out of all things for your good. The hope that we know of the future where one day we will be with him and all things will be right. Do you run and hide yourself in those things when the floods of, of the world come? One concluding thought before we praise this. So you remember, I told you I, I would go to the coffee shop and I would talk to the baristas about, you know, hey, what do you think the point of the story is? And there was that one young lady that she knew, like, almost more details than I knew of the story, and it was, like, on the spot. I was super impressed. Well, a few weeks before, just, again, trying to have some intentional spiritual conversations with this girl, she told me that she had actually grown up in the church, which is not surprising, based on her answers, but that a few years ago, her and her boyfriend started going to uh, a universalist church. 
Well, if you're not familiar with that, it takes bits and pieces of the different major worlds religion and kind of makes this cacophony of spiritualism, stuff like that. And the, the parts they like about this, they take. The parts they don't like, they reject. And it's, it's a non-gospel damning, will not save you from your sins. I hate to even use the word church. Um, but it is definitely not some place where Jesus is exalted and the gospel is preached. So I say that because... Again, I don't have an x-ray machine on her heart, so I can't say this definitively. But I look at a young lady whose head is full of all the knowledge of the Bible who seems to have a heart completely disconnected from Jesus. So here's what I'm telling you. The point of the story is not to know the point of the story. You can know the point of the story and miss it. The point of the story, as in all stories, is Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Have you hidden yourself in him? Do you live in him? Do you know Jesus? Let me pray for us as we continue to worship. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we just are grateful for your grace. We're grateful for how you came and rescued us from the flood of God's wrath and continue to rescue us daily from the power and work of our sin. I pray that you would be exalted as we worship you now. And we thank you, Lord that one day we will be fully delivered from all floods in your presence, in your perfect kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.